Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. So a couple of things about this psalm. Um, The psalmist takes a conglomeration of scriptures and verses that we find in the book of Moses, we find in Exodus, Deuteronomy, as well as some of the other psalms and inspired text. And he kind of ties them all together in this psalm, Psalm 135. And what this psalm does is it celebrates the Lord's greatness and his goodness, as well as his sovereignty over everything that he has made. So this psalm would have been an encouragement to the Jews to trust in the Lord, even though they may have been going through tough times, even though they may have been in exile in foreign nations that worshiped other gods, this psalm would have been an encouragement to keep at it, don't give in, um, even in the midst of your situation, praise the Lord. And so this psalm was, is an attempt to inspire hope, exactly how to inspire hope, by reminding them of these three things, right? Israel's redemption from Egypt, their protection along the way, and their eventual entrance into the land of, of promise, the, the, their inheritance, the land of Canaan. And so after recalling all that the Lord has done for them all throughout history, what was their intention? What was the psalmist's intention? It was to inspire hope that even in, their, in the midst of their situation, they can respond with praise. And so that's our duties, believers, that in your situation right now, whatever you're dealing with, right, you you can't hide from the fact that you're sad, but what is our response to the Lord in the midst of it is to praise and worship the Lord. Father God, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for Psalm 135. Lord, I pray that in the midst of our going through Psalm 135, that you show us who you are, that you reveal to us the beauty behind Jesus Christ, that you pluck our hearts, that you open our eyes to see the beauty of what you have done to bring us and to redeem us into the fellowship of your holy grace, Lord. I pray that our hearts would melt at the sight of your son on the cross. Please give me accuracy to the text. Lord, I pray that you remove me altogether. Lord, you make me a holy vessel for your word. Remove me out of the picture right now, Lord, and let it be by your spirit that speaks to your church. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Church, have you ever been in a season where you just felt like you were on the perpetual struggle bus? There's almost no joy to life. You turn to the scriptures to, 
to be inspired, but when you walk there, you go there, you read there, you just walk away feeling even more discouraged. You ever have days like that? Where uh, every day seems like it's a huge battle with little bit, little bitty victories along the way. That when you pray to God, you, you go into his word, but you just don't hear his voice. I think when we find ourselves in the midst of those dark moments, we learn a lot about ourselves in those situations. When, when life gets crazy, where, do you, where are you tempted to turn? In those moments of suffering, what do you tend to put your trust in? What do you treasure most? When you are hurting, where do you go for, to comfort? Who is your priority? And I think our hearts will be revealed to, by the answer to those questions that you don't have to tell me, but I want you to be thinking about that. And, and, and do we worship the one true God, or do we tend to worship idols? Do we tend to fall into the arms of things that we've made up in our imaginations? Even though you're not going to wooden statues, uh, uh, we do worship something. Human beings were created to worship. So whether it's God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, or it's something else that we tend to serve. And I think if you dig deep into your hearts right now or tonight or whenever, you're going to discover that you might be serving those idols because they're what you want. They're what you crave. They're what you enjoy more than God. As sinners, we, we tend to praise and worship the things we covet. Why? Because of the instant gratification they provide to us in a moment. So this psalm is designed to motivate you uh, as believers to praise God by telling you all the things he has done from the beginning up until now. When you're struggling with life and are tempted to run into the arms and to find comfort in things other than God, I want you to do this. I want you to remember and recall. Remember and recall how good the Lord is. And then sometimes we forget, right? Write those things down. As you recall and remember, write them down. And then when you have a list, I want you to, to look at that list and look at his goodness and all he's done for you, and then praise him for it. Praise him for it. There are 10,000, as the title says, there are 10,000 good reasons why we should praise, praise the Lord. So I hope you have, you've gone to the bathroom. I hope you have your coffee, because I do plan to go through all 10,000 of them today. No, I'm just going to go over a few reasons why we should praise the Lord. We should praise the Lord for his name. The psalmist tells us those who serve the Lord, those who stand in the house of the Lord, the house is his holy temple to praise 
three different times in verses one through three. In verses one through three, he says, praise the Lord. Now, when I was chewing and meditating on these verses, I'm like, man, why would someone have to tell believers, those who stand in the house of God, to praise three times? Like, I know what that means. That feels like I got to tell my kids three times to, to do something. But why would the psalmist have to tell God's people to praise three times? That should be an automatic response from God's people. So my mind began to wonder about all the reasons God's servants refused to praise him, those who stand in his house. So I started to think about myself. Could it be laziness? Perhaps I've inundated with myself so much with this task and that task, and I'm crossing things off the list and I'm doing that job. But then when it's time to come into the Lord's house, I don't have any energy or time for him because I put it in so many outside things that when it finally comes to church or any other day, I don't have any time for the Lord. What about a heart versus head thing? Pastors fall into this all the time because we are so um, um, uh, interested in all the dynamics with all the theology and the doctrine and keeping things right. Perhaps the servants of God, um, um, the word has gotten to the head, but it's not yet plucked the heart and it's definitely not gotten to the hands. So it kind of stays in the mind as an intellectual exercise that, that, that we tend to do, and we just going through the motions. Do you think that God is good? Do you believe that right now, in your current situation, in your struggle, in your circumstances, that God is good? I think the hardest thing for us, even as believers, is to believe that he is good in our current situation. When things are good or bad, we tend to go to, to opposite extremes. We're either, we either delight um, in the good circumstances that happen to us instead of delighting in God, or we're tempted to doubt God's goodness and wisdom when we're dealing with struggle. When we're facing those moments Man, we got to, family, we got to seek the Lord's face and ask him to show us who he is so that we have a right understanding of his goodness. And guess what? That's what Moses did. Remember in the book of Exodus where Moses sought after the Lord's face. He asked the Lord to, to show me your glory. And so the Lord did. And it was a sweet, intimate moment where God and Moses were together. And Moses learned that Yahweh is a compassionate God. That means he cares about you. And he wants to show you mercy and be tender towards you. He learned that God is, is a gracious God, that he does things for you that you don't deserve. Even when you're not worthy, he lavishes love. Oh, Holy Spirit, we, he lavishes love and gifts and favor on you because he's kind. Moses learned in that moment that, that God was slow to anger. He has every right 
to strike us down in his righteous anger towards sin. But he's patient, isn't he? He's patient with us. Man, he waits right there like in a waiting room, waiting for us to come into the knowledge of his truth. God is steadfast in his love for those he has called into his relationship. His faithfulness to his promises is unwavering despite our inconsistencies. And he learned that that Yahweh is abounding in truth. The ESV says he's, he's abounding in faithfulness. It's God's word. It's God's word that should govern your life because it's reliable and it's inherent. And after that moment where where Moses had that intimate moment with God and understanding his name and understanding who he is, Moses did what? He bowed down and worshiped him. In our worship of God, we can easily get into these stale seasons. I call them dry seasons. Do you ever feel like that where you know those times where you drag yourself to church, you're dragging yourself to serve, you're, you're doing your devotionals, you're going through all the motions, but your heart is just not there. You're feeling distant from God but, but you're, you're, you're talking to him, but, you're, but you know you're just disconnected. But God offers some solutions to this, right? And it's simple. And it's simple. Look at him. Behold him. See his glory, just like Moses did. Sup with him. Learn to enjoy him. And when you do that, you'll see that God is merciful and that he is gracious and that he is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and he is faithful. And folks, if we understand this, man, praise and worship won't seem like a chore. It will be a joy. It will be a joy. Our second reason to praise God is that he has chosen us, chosen us, not us to him. I have found Christ. No, he found you. He has chosen us to be his ambassadors, to be his ambassadors. So God commands his servants in verse two to praise him. Who are his servants? They are those who stand in his house. And in his courts, man, that's you. The first thing I think of when I think about court, I'm a history buff. I love Queen Elizabeth. And when I think about Queen Elizabeth's royal court, the court's primary role was to honor her and to praise her. And it it was made up of many members, people of her household. Um, um, English nobility, musicians, actors, painters, artists. I mean, it's numerous. And they would stand in her court and wait for her to come. And when she come and when she showed up, man, it was a party. They praised her. They, they, they celebrate her and they made much of her. 
And back in those times, the power came from the top down. They believed that God chose Elizabeth to be queen. So, so all the rules were made by Queen Elizabeth and then communicated to her court. And so the court's responsibility was to go out as the queen's ambassadors and spread all those rules to the people of England. In the same way, we serve a king. Together, we stand in his courts, praising his name. That's what we're supposed to do as servants. It's a privilege to serve King Jesus. And when you're saved, when you become saved, you become an absolute on-the-spot ambassador for the king. That's why we come to his house with praise. Then we're sent out. After today, we're sent out among the people as ambassadors representing the power and the authority of our king. And when we get among the people, what do we do? We don't talk about our agendas. We don't, want, we don't talk about what we want to see happen in this world. We talk about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the only agenda that those who stand in the house of God discuss. Christ and him crucified. The third reason to praise God is that he is good, man. He is good. In verse three, the psalmist give us a, good, a reason to praise God. He's good. Goodness is who he is. God couldn't cease to be good even if he tried. God is good in all things and in all ways. Man, God's good, wisdom is good. The knowledge he has is good. He makes good judgments. The power he has is good. All his works are good. After each step in, in creating the world, God said, say it with me, it's good. Our salvation is part of God's goodness. The thoughts that God has towards you are good. He drew us by faith in Jesus Christ because he is good. Come on, y'all with me. Are we praising the Lord? And when we praise God for his goodness, oh my word, oh my word, the last part of three, it is pleasant. It is pleasant. The experience we receive, man, verse three says it's pleasant. The experience is pleasing to us when we sing praises to our Lord. Praises is like, to me, like an incense burning on the altar. Man, the smell of it is sweet and it's savory and this fragrance fills the whole space, doesn't it? It fills the whole, the whole auditorium with its sweetness. That's praise. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. There are times I don't want to praise. When I get into an argument with my wife right before church, amen, somebody. Or the kids make me late to somewhere. The last thing I want to do is praise. I come into church and I just want to be mad at somebody. I want to pout and be mad and sulk. That's what I want to do. But. 
when I see y'all, my brothers and sisters, with your hands raised high and you're praising and you're singing, man, something starts to happen to me, man. When I hear the songs and I read the text and I hear y'all's beautiful harmonies that fill the space, my heart begins to unravel. And then I begin to contemplate God's goodness in my life alone. And suddenly the walls of anger that I built up around me come tumbling down. And I eventually give in right? Hands down, but my hands are raised because praise is so infectious, isn't it? It's so infectious and pleasant to me. The fourth reason to praise God is that he's gracious. Gracious. Man, he shows you mercy and favor when you don't deserve it. In verse 4, the psalmist uses Jacob and Israel as great examples of God's goodness and grace. And the temptation for us is whenever we see these names in the Bible, our minds tend to go to this. Man, they must be holy. They must be righteous. Like God put them in there for a reason. They must have kept all the rules. They must have kept all the laws or God wouldn't have put them in there. But it's quite the opposite. Take the nation of Israel. Man, them people were were murmurers. They were grumblers. They complained. They gossiped. Yet God was faithful to bring them out of slavery and take them into a promised land. They even worshiped. Took all the gold that they got from Egypt, made a golden calf to worship it. And that angered the Lord. The anger of the Lord burned so much that he wanted to destroy them all right on the spot. But guess what? Knowing God's name, he is good. He is gracious. He couldn't deny his good nature. So he, 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 he looked, he looked the other way and he took care of them and brought them in and provided for their needs anyway. Jacob, you guys know Jacob? The dude's a swindler. He, 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 he cheated his older brother out of his birthright. When his dad was blind, um, his father, I think, I believe his father's Isaac, right? No, Isaac? Yeah, Isaac. When his dad was blind and on his deathbed, Jacob went to him and, and Esau, his older brother's clothes, and pretended to be him to get the blessing. But guess what God does? He chose Jacob. What does that mean, folks? Jacob shows you that grace doesn't come to you because you did something right, that you deserve it, that you work for it, that you earned it. It's only because of God, his goodness and his faithfulness to keep his promises to his covenant people that you are in his fellowship right now. Man, maybe some of you are broken, you're hopeless, you're in a season of discouragement about your situations, 
Maybe you think you've done too much evil in this world to be forgiven by God. Your sins are beyond forgiveness. Why in the heck would God choose you? But here's the good news, family. Man, it's not for once. It's not about you. It was never about you. The good news is about his son, Jesus. And all you have to do is receive God's irresistible grace when he calls you. When he calls you, receive. But you might be saying, man, there must be something I got to do, right? It it can't be that easy. Okay, I'll play your game. There is something you have to do. Run, run, run into the arms of your Savior with open hands and open palms with a posture of humility, with a posture of praise on your lips, knowing that you didn't deserve any of it. That's all you have to do. And the moment you run into Jesus' arms, You're his. Nothing can pry you out of his hands. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're chosen by God. Through Christ Jesus, you become God's treasured possession. The psalmist moves from talking about the Lord's goodness to his greatness in verse five, which is the fifth reason we should praise the Lord. We have to praise the Lord because he is great as sovereign Lord. And there's a wonderful declaration in verse five. Our Lord is greater, which means more superior, more powerful than all the heathen or a pagan gods. The God of the Bible is higher Then the gods of the pagan world. That's why it's clear here in verse 6 that God has unbridled power with the ability to do whatever he wants. The power of God extends everywhere. Here's what it says in verse 6. From heaven to earth, in the seas, and all the way to the ends of the earth, God's power is on display. It's the Lord. Who makes the clouds rise? It's the Lord who who created the laws behind them and govern how the clouds and thunderstorms form. The processes are written by the Lord. I love it when the news tells me about it, but it is the Lord who created all the rules concerning him, concerning them. He tells the lightning. He tells the rain. He tells the wind where to go. They're like soldiers all under his command, waiting and willing to do what he says. Now, I know you've heard of the the false god Baal, but Baal was worshipped by the Canaanites as the god of weather. And sometimes Baal was depicted as holding a lightning bolt and was believed to be responsible for sending rain. Yet the psalmist says, "Uh uh-uh, you got that all wrong, brothers, in verse 7. It's Yahweh who controls the lightning and rain, not some man-made God. 
And I love it in verse 7, where the psalmist used this beautiful imagery of the Lord keeping all these resources in his storehouse. It reminds me of a homeowner who can go to his pantry anytime he wants to grab whatever he feels like and to use it whenever he wants. So God calls us to praise him because of his goodness. He then exhorts us to praise him for his greatness. Verses 8 through 14 calls us to praise him for his redeeming grace, which is described by how he redeemed them from Egypt, which is the sixth reason we should praise God. God is a redeemer. It was Yahweh who exalted himself over every supposed idol or god of Egypt by inflicting the plagues, the greatest one being the blow of all blows, the death of every firstborn. And when you doubt your, your, your God's faithfulness, when you, when, you, when you doubt God's grace and mercy, think about the Israelites, right? They were just as sinful as the Egyptians. They, they praised and worshiped some of the Egyptian gods, but guess what? Lord, the Lord remained faithful despite their disobedience, despite their stubbornness and their unwillingness to follow after him. He remained faithful to keep his promises. And it was the Lord who defeated all the nations in verse 10. Yahweh showed his greatness once Israel was free from Egypt, when he demeated, defeated all the nations and all the mighty kings that attacked his people along the way. And it mentions here in verse 11, um, King Amorite, uh, the Amorite kings Sihon and Og. I don't know if it's Og or OG. I like OG. King OG. But the Lord decimated with a small number of people those mighty kings. And here in verse 12, it says he gave them this land as their legacy. Man, you can't give something to somebody you don't own. But God owns everything up in here. He has every right to give and to take to whomever he please. And he gives the Israelites this land, a land that is enjoyed even today. It was God who redeemed you, family. It was God who saved you, and for that we should praise him. The seventh reason we should praise God is that he's immutable. Uh-oh, there's a, there's a word, immutable. That means the dude never changes. It's impossible for God to change because that would mean that something was wrong, and God is perfect. In most of uh, the first 12 verses of this psalm, the psalmist gives us all the reasons to praise God. Verses 13 and 14, the psalmist takes a praise break. Like he can't, he, he can't, after recalling all the Lord, all the things the Lord do, has done, in verses 13 and 14, he's overwhelmed with thanksgiving and he takes a, a pause to praise. And so in those verses, he's speaking more directly to God for his unchanging, immutable name. In verse 13, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages, 
for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Here's one thing you need to know, family. God's promises that he has made all throughout history that he's made to you in your prayers, as you have sought his face, they never change. They never shift. They never shake. We, we change. We shift. But God don't. He won't break any of the promises that he has made, that he has made. All of this applied back then, and all of this applies even today. What God was for Abraham, what God was for Isaac and Jacob, he is for us too. God told Abraham all those thousands of years ago that he would make a, a descendants as, as numerous as the stars. Man, that's you. <laughs> you were the one, was the one that Abraham did this and looked at that. That's your face. You, you were part of the plan all along, man, because he's, he's the great I am, not a yesterday God who only works in the past, but an ever-present God working right now in your midst, and he's faithful to finish what he has started in you. Continuing where the psalmist left off, the psalmist explains in verse 15 through 18, why the Lord is better than the gods of the nation. He's talking about idols. Where do they come from? Where do idols come from? By our imaginations. We make them up. You see, in a microwave society where the food's ready in two minutes, where we're impatient and we're ready to get something right. Now we're, we're searching and we're looking for instant gratification. So we worship what we can touch. We worship what we can see. We worship what we can measure. We worship what we can smell and what we can, can't control. But their ability compared to Yahweh is inadequate and worshiping them will do nothing but get in your way of pure and true worship of God. And so verses 15 through 17, there is a call to recognize their inadequacy. Charles Spurgeon wrote about a missionary, John Thomas, who traveled to India for missionary work. And one day he decided to go to a temple and they were waiting outside this temple. The doors finally opened and they all flooded into this temple. And as they entered in, they saw this statue, this idol before them. So I don't know if John has a couple screws loose or if he wasn't in his, in his right mind, but John walked in front of the people, puts his hand up, they all quiet down, and he touches their, uh, the idol's eyes and says, it has eyes, but it can't see. He touches its ears and said, it has ears, but it can't hear. Nose, but it can't smell. Hands, but it can't hold anything. It's got a mouth, but it can't speak. And there's no breath in it either. And after that moment, people were upset. 
and they were about to bum rush John Thomas and give, give him a great good beat down. But there was an old man convicted by those words, an old Indian man who cried out, it has feet, but it can't run. And right before Thomas's beat down, people were convicted by that old man saying, and finally got to see how inadequate that idol was that they've been worshiping for years and generations. In these verses, the psalmist warns us about our views on God. Remember, Moses wanted to see God's glory and learned who God's God was, who he is, what he represented. And so we, if we don't have a right understanding of our God, man, everything's going to be jacked up. Your view of God sets the whole entire tra trajectory of your whole in Christian walk because it dictates what you believe about God. It doesn't matter whether you worship the true God or a false God, what you think about God determines what you become. There's only one way to worship the true God, and that's all of him. You're worshiping his glory. You're worshiping his goodness, his election, his sovereignty, his redemption, and even his judgment needs to be worshiped and praised. Or you'll worship a God that you made up in your mind. You might not be going to a wooden statue, but if you've invented a God in your image, if you've invented a God, well, well, this is the way I see God, then you're, you're finding yourself in danger of idol worship. There's a danger in worshiping an idol. According to verse 18, it says, those who trust in them become like them. Listen here, only Yahweh can fill you and lead you to more. When you worship idols, you get less. They, they can't fill your void. You, 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 you created this God to serve you, right? But you just end up serving it. When my kids were little, around two or three years old, I noticed uh, how much they imitated my wife and me. Um, they cooked and fed their Barbie dolls or their stuffed animals the exact same way we fed them. We give a lot of medicine in my house. They, they fed and gave their dolls medicine just the way they did. We pray with them as often as we can. We find them praying with their Barbies and, and, and praying with their stuffed animals the same way we did. And I know you have stories of your kids doing the exact same thing. Children imitate their parents. And that trend even continues with us as adults. Even we imitate what we're, what we're around. We mimic what's going on in our culture and society and whatever, whatever our friends are into, we want to do the same exact thing. There's a principle here. What we revere, what we cherish, what we love we become like. Modern or ancient idolatry is a useless search 
for anything other than God. When things go well, who do you think? When things go bad, where do you turn? Who or what is your source of security? Where do you get your sense of worth? What is your life goal? And does God fit into that? It's the answers to questions like these that will tell you, am I honoring God as God or am I into idol worship? And that does not necessarily mean that you're, you're worshiping a statue, but drooling over a neighbor's car, covet, coveting your, your neighbor's wife, getting a little retail, I don't want to be killed by anybody, but getting a little retail therapy in to ease that pain and suffering is putting your trust in something other than the creator, and that is idolatry. And like wood, like rock, like stone, we become lifeless, unable to hear God's call not able to comprehend God's word, unable to see clearly the will that the Lord has for your life. So here's your challenge, brothers and sisters. Don't worship anything but the true God. Get to know him. Discover like Moses who God is by going to his word because he tells you all about himself there. We, we, we can't just make it up as we go along, we got to go to him, read his word, learn about he, who he is, and worship the one true God. Now, as I finish up here, the last three verses is a call for ministers and everyone who loves and reveres God to worship him. So verse 19a talks about the whole nation of Israel as seen in verse 19a. The house of Aaron and Levi, which were the priests and the ministers of the temple in 19b and in 20a. And then in um, the last part of it, all who fear him, all who fear him, referring to all believers. Man, Psalm 135 isn't just for the Levites, the priests, or those who serve in the temple. This is a psalm for God's entire congregation. This is about us. This is about you, God's chosen generation of priests, his special people that he's called out of darkness and into his marvelous light to praise and worship the Lord. Worship is a community thing. It's just not reserved for elders and pastors or the people up here. It's, it's, it's not just reserved for, for, for folks who, who uh, uh, do their professional obligations and duties. Man, all of us should worship God for his grace and for the work that he's done in bringing us into fellowship with him. Praise and worship isn't just a spectator sport. It's not for public relations or, or for, for boosting attendance, but we have a duty as servants, those who stand in the house of the Lord to praise God, man, after all he has done. And when you see a brother or a sister down and out, discouraged, 
as brothers and sisters united together in Christ, we have to encourage. We have to encourage one another to praise God and to worship even when our hearts aren't there. We have to remind each other of God's goodness and his provision and all the ways he's been good to us, even in the tough times. So I'd like for you to do something for me. In the morning, when you go to your, your porch or to your prayer closet or to a private room to do your devotionals, I want you to remember and recall. Remember, we, we said remember and recall all the things, all the wonderful things the Lord has done for you. Take time to write the list and recall and remember all the ways he has been good to you in your pain all the ways he has saved you when you were in trouble, all the way he has walked you through a situation, all the ways he has heard your prayers, all the ways he has redeemed you in Christ and brought you into fellowship with him and saved you from death and brought you in into an inheritance. And as you remember and recall all these things, the last thing, Praise and worship him because he is good. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. We thank you and acknowledge that you're the one true God who rules and reigns over everything. Lord, it's because of your goodness and your greatness, your name, your great sovereignty, and who you are that we lift our hands up in praise and worship you because you have chosen us in your son as your great treasured possession through Jesus. All throughout history, Lord, you've proven that you are the Lord who saves, you are the Lord who redeems, and you are the Lord who delivers to us. So we don't have to fear. We don't have to be scared what comes next. There's no need to worry about anything that comes our way because you are in our midst doing the same thing that you did for your children of Israel all those thousands of years ago. And it's because of that, Lord, that we can rest and we can trust in you, the one true God. It's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.